Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. We're in the middle of a series, God With Us, and we're celebrating Advent this year. And today marks a turning point or a hinge point in the Advent series in Uh, You'll notice as I go to light the Advent candles that three are purple and one is pink and one is white. And there's a reason for that. And any one of us could Google uh, why are the Advent candles the colors that they are. And you would find all types of different answers on Google, as you would imagine. And some of those answers would be good for sure. But you might notice that the joy candle, the one that I'm lighting today, is a different color. It's pink or rose colored. And there's a number of different reasons for that. But the one that's sticky, the one reason that's sticky that I wanted to bring is that of being it Gaudet Sunday. Gaudet is a Latin term for rejoice. And it comes from a scripture that we'll read later on where Paul writes to the church at Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And early Christians and throughout uh, the centuries have lit this pink candle as a moment that is turning. So the first two weeks we talked about hope and we talked about peace. And we talked about those in sort of a waiting kind of expectation. We're a little bit excited, but mostly penitent type of way. This morning is different. We're closer to the incarnation, the enfleshment of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we move closer, there's an anticipation that moves from this sort of grieving and despair to that prophecy in Isaiah upon a a land of deep darkness, a light is beginning to dawn. And so if you're a sports fan this morning, tonight is, or this morning is kind of like halftime or the start of the third quarter if you're a football fan. It's kind of like if you're a golf fan, it's like the back nine. If you're a hockey fan, I don't know how many hockey fans, this might play off better in Canada, but we're somewhere around the middle of the second period, let's just say that. If you're a soccer fan, we're definitely in the second half of the 90 minutes, and we're awaiting with joy the birth of Jesus. And so throughout the course of the series, we've been watching these wonderful videos that the Bible Project, uh, Tim Mackey, has, has put out. And this morning, we're going to watch a video on the biblical definition of joy. This is really cool. This will be a foundation for us to kind of center our hearts around as we begin to discuss joy. Check this video out. Thank you. 
So good. Joy beyond circumstances. And like we learned last week when, when uh, Karen brought us a word on peace, and remember we had the broken pieces of ceramic tile and we're sort of like offering those in a very powerful experience and illustration on what it means to come to this joyful God. We are at a hinge point this morning in defining joy differently, like peace beyond an emotional sense of tranquility, joy beyond how the world defines it. Didn't Karen do a great job last Sunday? Yeah, give it up for Karen. It's great. And so C.S. Lewis back in the day said that joy is the serious business of heaven. 
And C.S. Lewis said that joy is a serious business of heaven because as Dallas Willard writes, he, the Lord, is undoubtedly the most joyous being in the universe. And I want to challenge us to soak in those words and believe those words as fresh this morning that we really are coming to a God who is the most joyous being in the universe. There's a book that Dallas Willard wrote. Some of you might be familiar with it. It's called The Divine Conspiracy. It's a wonderful book, and in it, Willard writes about joy. Now, this is a longer quote. I know I'm like little bite-sized pieces normally. This is more like a steak meal. So I wanted us to enjoy it together. This is a passage from The Divine Conspiracy. You don't have to do much. The words are not going to be on screen. Just reflect in this and hear... um, Hear the most joyful being in the universe as Willard pours out worship to Jesus. He writes this, Central to the understanding and proclamation of the Christian gospel today is a revisioning of what God's own life is like and how the physical cosmos fit into it. It is a great and important task to come to terms with what we really think of when we think of God. Most hindrances to the faith of Christ actually lie, I believe, in this part of our minds and souls. We should, to begin with, think that God leads a very interesting life and that he is full of joy. And here it is. Undoubtedly, he is the most joyous being in the universe. Willard goes on to share this story, and he says this, While I was teaching in South Africa some time ago, a young man took me out to see the beaches near his home in Port Elizabeth. I was totally unprepared for the experience. I had seen beaches, or so I thought. But when we came over the rise where the sea and the land opened up to us, I stood in stunned silence and then slowly walked toward the waves. Words cannot capture the view that confronted me. I saw space and light and texture and color and power that seemed hardly of this earth. Gradually, there crept into my mind the realization that God sees this all of the time. He sees it, experiences it, knows it from every possible point of view. This in billions of other scenes like and unlike it in this in billions of other worlds. Great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash through his being. It is perhaps strange to say, Willard writes, but suddenly I was extremely happy for God and thought I had some sense of what an infinitely joyous consciousness he is, and of what it might have meant for him to look at his creation and find it, quote, very good. We pay a lot of money to get a tank with a few tropical fish in it, and we never tire of looking at their brilliant iridescence and marvelous forms and movements, but God has oceans full of them, which he constantly enjoys. I can hardly take in these beautiful little creatures one at a time. This is what we must think of when we hear theologians and philosophers speak of him as a perfect being. This is his life. Now, Jesus himself was and is joyous. 
a joyous, creative person. He does not allow uh, to continue thinking of our Father who fills and overflows space as a morose and miserable monarch, a frustrated and petty parent, or a policeman on the prowl. One cannot think of God in such ways while confronting Jesus' declaration, quote, He that has seen me has seen the Father. Isn't that beautiful? One of the most outstanding features of Jesus' personality was precisely an abundance of joy. That this is, this he left as an inheritance to his apprentices that their joy might be full, John 15, 11. So we must understand that God does not, catch this, we must understand that God does not love us without first liking us. Through gritted teeth, as Christian love sometimes thought to do. Rather, out of, an, out of the eternal freshness of his perpetually self-renewed being, the heavenly Father cherishes the earth and each human being upon it. The fondness, the endearment, the unstingingly affectionate regard of God toward all of his creatures is the natural outflow of who he is at his core, which we vainly try to capture with our tired, indispensable old word love. Gosh. Can you hear Willard just pouring it out in worship? God, the most joyful being in the universe. And no doubt we find this in the incarnation narrative. As Jesus, the enfleshment of God, comes to earth to become like us, to put on skin and bones, the fullness of the deity of Yahweh stuffed and squished into the tiny baby chest of Jesus, we read this story of the shepherds in Luke 2. I want to challenge you to hear this one fresh. Hear this one fresh. In Luke, we'll skip to verse 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, nearby Bethlehem, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, the Messiah. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men and women on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all of these things in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told just as they have been told. Do not be afraid. 
You know, we spent the last 10 weeks before the Advent series talking about what the gospel means and what the good news is. Theologians, no doubt, and philosophers have given their entire lives to defining and answering that question, what is the gospel? And we might hear different answers to that question. You might hear from some circles within the Christian faith that the gospel is all about taking care of the poor. If we lose sight of the poor, we've lost sight of the gospel. The gospel is about caring for those in poverty. You would be right, but that's not the totality of the gospel. In other circles, you might hear, well, the gospel is forgiveness of sins. You know, at the, at the death of Jesus on the Christ, we have forgiveness of sin. And that's what the gospel is about. But again, that's not the totality of the gospel. I believe, with many others, that we find the answer to that question here in the mouths of the messengers of God. This is one we learned last week from Karen, Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. Stands in the presence of Almighty God, Yahweh. Delivering a message, and so you know if the angel is delivering the message, it's true. And the angel says, this will be good news that causes great joy. Today, in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior, Messiah, is born. That's the good news. That's the gospel that today... A Savior is born. That's the good news to us today in Cleveland, Ohio. That today, in the Bethlehem of your heart, a Savior is born. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's born today in the town of David. And a lot of times when we come to this familiar story of the shepherds, we have this idea in our heads about what it must have looked like. And it's different from the actual scene of what happened that night. You know, we have in our minds the scene that might not be all dissimilar from a nativity scene that you find in your living room with plastic figures of old shepherds crowded around, kind of halfward awkward kneeling to Jesus. <laughs> They're kind of like that, right? And the wise men are there too. They're all white, of course. And little baby Jesus is there. And that's not what was happening that night out in the fields. When we think of the shepherds, we should think differently about what went on that night. You see, shepherds, as they are today in Jewish society and in um, the Middle East generally, were not old men. Who were they? They were young boys, mostly dudes. They were regarded as the lowest rung of society. It was, in fact, not kosher to do business with shepherds. Rugrats. You couldn't trust them as far as you could throw them. They had no civil rights. And God's announcement that Messiah is here comes to them. And these aren't little like fairy angels like Cupid and Valentine's Day. These are mighty angel warriors of light who stand in the presence of God. And not just one or two, but the sky is lit up with them. Myriad of messengers proclaiming 
that Jesus is born today. This is the scene that the shepherds find themselves in. And then like crazy kids, they all run crazy through the town sharing the good news that causes great joy. And it's not like we sing in the song. It's a great Christmas carol, but it is not a little town of Bethlehem. For any of you who have been following Jesus for any amount of time, you know that the town of Bethlehem may have been small in population, but it is hugely significant and important in the narrative of Jesus coming to earth. And that it didn't just happen that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This is something that was prophesied from the beginning of the book. This blew my heart up this week, you guys. This is a little town of Bethlehem. The first time that Bethlehem is mentioned in Scripture is Genesis 35, 19 through 21, where we read that Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. Now, Rachel, as you might know, is Jacob's wife. Jacob is a descendant of the line of Jesus. Rachel's name, buried in Bethlehem, means you. Not like Y-O-U-U, not like ew, yuck, but you, E-W-E. It means sheep or lamb. Hold on, it gets better. Rachel was specifically buried at Midgal Eder. Midgal Eder is a Hebrew term that's translated a tower of the flock. This is Genesis. A tower of the flock. Wait, it gets better. What happened at Midgal Eder, you might ask? Well, according to Jewish history, Midgal Eder was the place in Bethlehem that unblemished, firstborn male lambs were born. They were wrapped in cloths and they were brought to Jerusalem as Passover sacrifices at the temple. An extraordinary foreshadowing of who John the Baptist called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hundreds of years before, picture it you guys, hundreds of years before Jesus hits the scene, year after year, decade after decade, these shepherds uh, raised firstborn, unblemished male lambs outside of the place that the Passover lamb would be born. And so when the angels show up on the scene that night, they're saying, fear not. For today, your Passover lamb that you've been waiting hundreds, thousands of years for is born today. Your Passover lamb is born in the town of Bethlehem. Later in Micah, the prophet Micah in verse 4, 8, he announces that to the tower of the flock would come a king, the one true king Jesus, who was first introduced, like we said, by John the Baptist. Isn't that rich? How could, you couldn't make something like that up. That the birth of Jesus was prophetically announced geographically hundreds of years before he hits the scene. This is a pretty special baby. 
This is a pretty special thing that's happening to a bunch of teenage young children in Bethlehem outside of Jerusalem. For our purposes this morning, we focus on verses 9 and 10. Isn't it great? That the first time that the gospel, the good news that causes great joy, the first time that it's pronounced from the mouth of the messengers of God, the first time that it's pronounced over all of us out in the fields that night, the first words that accompany the good news that causes great joy are, do not be afraid. You see, because fear is the antithesis of love. And so the angels are communicating as the shepherds are terrified and freaking out that a new time is coming. No longer will you live under the curse of fear. But a baby of love has been born to deliver you. He's Messiah. He's Christ the Lord. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. A Savior is born. There's a Messiah today. That's the gospel. It's not health and wealth and prosperity, uh, the American gospel. It's not the social justice gospel. It's the good news that causes great joy is that today in the town of Bethlehem, a Messiah is born and his name is Jesus. So we learn from Tim Mackey in the Bible Project that joy is deeper than an emotion. It goes beyond that. It's more like this inner condition of the heart of who Jesus is and was. It was no doubt the inner condition of what the shepherds were experiencing that night. If it wasn't, they wouldn't have gone all over town sharing the news that caused great joy. It's more than an emotion. It's the inner condition of the heart of Jesus And so that moves us to say that it's implied of us that we would carry the same joy that he was and is. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 4 through 9, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends or passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, Paul says, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace, Emmanuel, right? So, as we kind of wind down this morning, I'd like to go over three, quickly, practices to cultivate joy in our hearts. And for the Christian, Advent should be all of the time. We should always be waiting. We should always be watching. And so these are three practices that we glean here from Philippians 4 that we can put into practice to cultivate joy because joy is a fruit of the Spirit, right? And if joy is a fruit of the Spirit, then it is something that we can grow in partnership with the Holy Spirit and produce in our lives. Would you agree? We can grow 
in becoming more joyful people. We can grow and mature in what it means to be filled with the joy of who Jesus is. And so first off, as you see here, is to give thanks. Theologian Karl Barth said that joy is the simplest form of gratitude. I love that. I would say that those two ideas are interchangeable. They're like siblings, kind of. You can't have one without the other. Gratitude is the simplest form of joy. We're told here in Philippians 4 that in every situation, by prayer and petition, we should come with thanksgiving. I'll tell you this. I've never met a joyous person who feels entitled. I've never met a grateful person who feels like they are deserving of the world. We must first cultivate gratefulness and gratitude in our hearts in order to experience the joy or life of God. It's true. And we've all got room to grow on this. And that's why I love being around and listening to um, folks who have been following Jesus for like 50 years. They happen to be like men who are in their 70s, who truly love Jesus. And do you know what their advice to me most times is? Evan, are you grateful for the gifts God has put in? Are you even aware of the gifts and blessings that are on your life? The blessing of family, that you have a wife who loves you, that you have kids who respect you, that you have food and what you know, simple things. And when you get around dudes who are in their late 70s who really follow Jesus, you'll find that there is a gratitude about their lives that is actually transferable to you, imparted to you. And that makes me say, I don't know about you, but makes me say, I want to be more like you when I grow up. It starts with giving thanks. We're told in the Psalms over and over again to enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise as we go to ascend the hill in worship. We're told that the admission ticket is gratitude. To ascend the hill, we come with thanksgiving. Yes, petition is fine. You shouldn't feel guilty for asking things of an inexhaustible resource of who God is. Never feel guilty for that. There's always more where God is. And how would it change our prayer lives? How would it change our lives if we simply started our prayer in the morning with, thank you, God. Thank you for who you are. This is a practice that we can be after for our entirety of our lives, until the day we come to meet Jesus face to face. I want to encourage you, as I encourage myself, to give thanks this Advent season and beyond the Advent season into 2024 until your last breath, To if you feel that prompting inside, to shoot that text out to that person you're thankful for. Don't hold back gratitude, to give thanks, to write that letter to that mentor in your life that showed you what... Um, it meant to follow Jesus that many years ago. Write that letter to that mentor. Give that phone call to that family member who's encouraged you that you're thankful for. Pick up the phone and call them. Give thanks, Paul says. You know, we're in a time where this is, it couldn't be more relevant. President Lincoln, we just went through this holiday of Thanksgiving at the end of November. 
And President Lincoln instituted this national holiday to give thanks. Like, what is that? <laughs> like, I think what America needs is a day where we just give thanks. Like, no one's ever seen that before. But his purposes were good in it, and I felt, I feel prophetic. You see, the nation had just undergone this little thing called the Civil War, where brothers were taking up arms against each other. And as, um, as Lincoln prayed, he thought, you know what would be good for our country? You know what would be great for our nation? We are deeply divided right now. You know what would be good for that? Was if everybody just took the day off and gave thanks. Like everybody in the whole country. If everyone did that. Do you see the mind of God in that? That where there is great division, the way to overcome great division is with gratitude. Yeah. The way away from entitlement is to give thanks. And Paul says it here in Philippians. Secondly, we draw near to God. Paul says, look, you guys, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. He's near to you. We're told in other places in the New Testament that we're to draw near to God. And when we draw near to God, he becomes Emmanuel, God with us. When we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And thankfully, in some of our worst moments, he draws near to us even when we don't draw near to him. He's Emmanuel, God with us. The Lord is near. Psalm 16, David writes that um, in your presence is fullness of joy and eternal pleasures at your right hand. It's in God's presence. It's in the, pre the living presence of the Holy Spirit where we cultivate joy. We learn what it means to be thankful people to become people who give thanks and also people who are filled with the presence of God. We draw near to God and God draws near to us. Lastly, Paul reminds us to renew our minds, as he writes in Romans, to curate your mind stream, as it were. He says, whatever is lovely, etc., think about such things. Think about those things. And what he's implying here, I believe, is that the world is hardwired to believe the opposite. And that's why his encouragement to the church at Philippi and to us this morning, the Lord's encouragement is to think about these such things. Paul's saying or implying here that you are encouraged as a follower of Jesus to think about things that are lovely because the world only thinks about things that are disgusting. Think about things that are true and good because the world thinks about things that are false and wrong. Paul would go on to say, you used to think this way before Jesus became Lord of your life. Before Bethlehem and Jesus was born in the Bethlehem of your heart, you used to walk around this way. You used to engage in these activities. Paul says, no more. Renew your mind. Think about such things that are lovely that are true. Let your gentleness be evident to all. This is a tough assignment to take, as Paul writes elsewhere, every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. When thoughts become obedient to Christ, they begin to be seen as 
whatever is lovely, whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is excellent, praiseworthy. As those thoughts bend the knee to the lordship of Jesus. And I just wanted to encourage those of you who see that and the other practices as a tough assignment or an impossible assignment. I want to speak to you specifically. You know who you are. I want to speak to you. It's you going through a season of pain. Going through a season of trauma, of suffering, to which these practices seem like a million miles away. Maybe a loved one and their health is struggling. The diagnosis is terminal. There's not much you can do about it. You're experiencing pain there. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe there's an inner turmoil in you. Maybe you're struggling with substance abuse. Maybe your relationship, your marriage is just in trouble. Maybe there's a son or a daughter who is far from God, and that's not too much fun. I want to encourage you, I want to speak to you specifically, for those of you walking through pain. This morning, sitting in your chair, listening to a sermon on joy. Because it's not, it's not Rockwellian, is it, life? It's, it's not always that you're sitting around that Rockwellian Thanksgiving table with a big turkey and everyone's smiling and everyone's kind to each other. It's just not that, is it? Mm-mm. It's, not, it's definitely not. And to you... I want to encourage you with James' words to consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, what, whenever, not if ever, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Allow, let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Isn't that good news this morning? That What James is saying is that not every trial, very few of them actually, like 99.9%, like Almost all of them are not in your life by God's hand, do you see? But, but, the trials, the suffering, the pain that you are experiencing, God is working in the middle of so that you may see them as pure joy. James says, unadulterated in its purest authentic form, Joy, beyond emotion, that those trials that you're experiencing in the here and the now will someday be trophies of grace, which you can consider pure joy because you've let perseverance finish its work in you. And that is the peace which transcends all understanding. You'll stick out like a sore thumb, or as Bono says, joy is an act of defiance. 
You are, you are setting your foot on the line and you are saying, I will no longer see my trials and sufferings the same way that humanity has for millennia. I will not grieve without hope. I will not despair without faith. I will not leave this planet without first grasping the presence of Jesus in my life. I won't be, I won't be torn down. I won't, it's not, life is not a house of cards waiting for one card to be pulled out. I stand on the foundation of Jesus. And Jesus said that he has joy and he wants joy to be in our lives to be complete. We have the foundation of Jesus to walk through any circumstance. To consider it pure joy. Amen. Amen. To consider those trials pure joy, pure gold on the other side of it. 